Coming up tonight, Evan Ferguson continues to make the headlines. The 18-year-old was on the mark once again for Brighton last night. And there it is for Ferguson! Brighton have a two-goal lead and have a bright prospect on their hands in Evan Ferguson. And what now for Everton after that 4-1 defeat? In a world championship year, can Ireland's leading athletes continue to progress? We'll reflect on what was an epic world darts final. And we'll have the latest on the ongoing match-fixing story affecting World Snooker. You can text 51522 or email gameon at rte.ie. Game on on 2FM. Welcome along. Well, the uh, inter-county GAA scene is already up and running. Games have been on the last two nights in the various pre-season competitions. Tonight, All-Ireland Football Champions Kerry are in action against Cork at Parky Rin in the McGrath Cup. I'm joined by uh, Ina Reardon of the Irish Times. In um, when you look at these uh, inter-county games so early in the year, and you now the realisation is that it's pretty much full on in terms of inter-county action from now until the end of July. Exactly, Dave. The split season is, uh, begins in earnest, even though the club season's not quite done yet. This this is an inter-county season which more or less runs continuously through now till the end of July. Um, I don't know how many games. I saw I saw a list of games recently and I think it's maybe 30 more games than last year as if there wasn't enough games already. Um, as you mentioned there, I think you had Tip and Waterford out in the hurling last night. There was a good win for, for Waterford. I think it's 10, 10 football games I counted tonight, nine new managers um, all 8pm starts by the way that's, that's a long it's a, a late night for, for, for a lot of teams there including of course um, you mentioned Kerry are out against Cork uh, that's down in Park Uran then you have Dublin are out against Wicklow that's down in Bolton Glass um, not Blessington by the way if in, case, in case anyone's on the way to Blessington um, I, was, I was somehow overlooked for that particular marking and then you got Colin O'Rourke back in Mead he, he's, playing, he's down in Carlo um, There's so many stories around the place isn't there Yeah and I suppose people would ask the question why why do you need these games I mean if you put a gun to my head and asked me who's the defending of Burnt Cup champions I would have no idea um, but, but I think for the, at the same time I can see the benefit for the managers who haven't had a chan- the chance to see many of these players in action yet given the fact they've only been back training for a couple of weeks and um, we all know now how, how important the league has become and you can't you can't really walk into the league without some sort of competitive game so it's um, I can see the value in that but 80 o'clock on a Wednesday night it just seems to me to be very 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 difficult about the players and managers and, and spectators but it's at the same time um, they, said they do need these games but I wouldn't I wouldn't be reading into any of the, any of the results any of the score lines other than maybe a little bit of curiosity as to who's learning out for, uh, in certain positions And these games often attract really good crowds of course because I mean as you said nothing really at stake but people are starved of uh, inter-county action. Yeah, I certainly expect to see a few more out this weekend. I think Mead are at home for the first time this weekend. And again, you mentioned like Desi Dolan back in West Mead. That's a big move. You've got Paddy Christie. Uh, he's moved into Longford. Um, Vinnie Corey's back in Monaghan. Uh, who else? And then Andy McEntee, who was in Mead. He's gone to Antrim. So these are all big, high-profile names. It'll be a lot of interest to see how they how they get on. And of course, Jack O'Connor down in Kerry tonight. I think he only has three of us all Ireland panel on the on the team. Although having said that, it's not a bad team. So Jack will be Jack will be tipping away nicely there. Um, but it does. It's only when it gets to the final. Maybe you'll you, maybe you take an interest in what what's really the results. But uh, by the end of the month, you're into the league. We all know how important it is now to maintain your division status 
and also obviously the championship is now based on league positions as well Okay Ian will be with us for the uh, duration looking ahead obviously to the uh, athletics year after a very promising 2022 for the sport in Ireland but uh, let's talk uh, Premier League football now and uh, for Evan Ferguson 2022 of course ended with a first Premier League goal 2023 began with his first Premier League start and again Ferguson was on the mark for Brighton in a 4-1 win over Everton at Goodison Park Mr. Pinyan in towards Samiento, twisting and turning, and there it is for Ferguson! Brighton have a two-goal lead and have a bright prospect on their hands in Evan Ferguson. Evan, you're going to remember your first Premier League start for ever in a day, aren't you? I think so, yeah, I think so. Great result, obviously, coming bouncing back from last week is probably the best thing we can ask for, yeah. Yeah, you scored against Arsenal. It didn't really mean a lot, did it, in, in terms of the result? How much better does it feel when it's in a, a winning cause? Yeah, I think it's a lot better when you can go and celebrate and not go on picking the ball up and getting straight back. So just buzzing, buzzing with the result and to get another goal. I know you, your dad played professional football, didn't he? Was he here or any of the family here tonight? No, I don't think so. They're back home watching, so I'd say I'll have a few messages after and they'll go ring them. So. You spoke about Evan Ferguson beforehand, just 18. How impressed were you with his maturity tonight? He can become a great uh, striker. He has a, a big potential, uh, physical and uh, technical. Uh, in, uh, in our team, uh, my work is to help uh, the, the, the young player to progress. That is the man of the moment, Evan Ferguson there, speaking to Sky Sports after another goal uh, in that win over Everton last night. Also, you heard there from the uh, Brighton manager, Roberto De Zerbi, some uh, special words of praise for Ferguson. And now joined by Conan Byrne. Conan, so much has been said about Ferguson this last while. He really has, as I said, made a great end to one year and a great start to the next year. There had been some talk of him perhaps going out on loan, but presumably he's going nowhere now. No, absolutely not. Um, and funnily enough, the, he, his he, Neil Mopai, who's who's gone to Everton in, in uh, back in the summer, he's having not having the great starts of his season at Goodison Park, and yet Ferguson probably would have been down the pecking order even more if Mopai had stayed around at, at Brighton. But it just goes to show that in in football you deserve these little little bits of luck, and you, you make you make your own luck in football. And Ferguson is certainly doing that. He's given his opportunity by Zerbi and and full credit to to him for taking that chance going back to the goal against Arsenal I don't think a lot has been talked about about the skill and technique that he used in getting the ball under Ramsdale the little roll with the top of his boot to, 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 get, him, to get him into the right position to put it underneath Ramsdale's legs and then his goal yesterday just such a clever movement going and then checking to, to receive the ball and uh, another wonderful finish and for a player that's just turned 18 in October Dave he's, um, he's certainly got a bright future ahead of him but I really do think we can't be putting too much pressure on him like we have done with other potential strikers that have that have come through the ranks over the last couple of years. Just on that, from what we've heard of him in post-match interviews and seen of him on, on TV, he certainly seems a very level-headed individual, though, doesn't he? Oh, he does. He comes from good stock. Um, his dad, Barty, obviously was was a professional footballer. He played with him as well with, with Sporting Fingal in his latter days. Um, and even when I, I hosted a podcast a couple of years ago when, I, when, when Evan first made the move to Brighton, I asked Barry and Evan to come on the show and Barry was just, Barry was like, no, Colin, I just, he, he needs to keep his head down and, and go under the radar a little bit and really concentrate on his football. And, 
that alone just goes to show that he that it, it's all about hard work for him. And we've heard a lot about the, the talk about physical and technical ability, but I think mental strength is really, really important in football, and he seems to have that in abundance. Yeah, Brighton, I think, have been one of the real fairy tale stories of the of the league season, obviously. But it's also, it's the Irish connection as well. I mean, I think Jamie Mullins is a new signing down there as well. Um, it's it's interesting. I don't know what your what your thought on that is. Uh, Colin, like, in terms of the Irish connection, is that, is that a deliberate thing or is that just by chance that there seems to be a neat, a neat Irish connection being built down there? I just think that with the success that, that that's brought, you see Evan Ferguson obviously has come in and he's done really, really well. Um, James Furlong has, went over, obviously, when um, from Shamrock Rovers. He made his League of Ireland debut at Oriel Park at age 16 against for Shamrock Rovers. And, and then, obviously, Andrew Moran comes on last night as well. Another another player, product of the of the League of Ireland scene. He was Bray's youngest ever goal scorer in the League of Ireland. And then, obviously, now Jamie Mullins as well. And Jamie is a, is, is a talented player. He was always going to go across the water and... Um, and, and Ply his trade over there, and it's no surprise that it's Brighton because I'm sure, as in the interviews that that he's talked about Jamie today, he's been he's been saying he's been talking to Evan and about how much they got on. I remember doing a co commentary on on the SSE Electricity League final of the Under Seventeen League uh, two years ago, I think it was, where Bowes played Rovers, and just looking at that, the, the two teams that were playing on the day, you, you have Kevin Zeffy now that's at Inter Milan. You've obviously Jamie and Evan Ferguson at Bowes. They ended up winning the game two 0 but you've got other players in that in, in, in those starting 11s that have gone on to, to the start their League of Ireland careers really really well the likes of Leno Sullivan who's signed for Bray from Wexford and you've Conan Noonan that, uh, he's got a bit of uh, injury himself at the moment but he'd be, he'd be hopefully coming back into the Shamrock Rovers team and Michael Leddy who's gone up to Drogheda from, from Shamrock Rovers and loan so you've got players there that, that have only just played in an under 17 league final two years ago that are now really trying to to make careers themselves in the game and it just goes to show that the pathway is there now for, for League of Ireland footballers. Conan, is it too early to even consider Evan Ferguson starting against France in March? Look, I, I, this, is, this is what I mean by the pressure but like, if if he keeps going the way he's going and he comes on and he, he scores goals and he, he'll start he, start against France. We look at Michael Obafemi who's obviously fallen out of favour with Russell Martin at Swansea so you can't really see him starting. Adam Eda has, has, has done well when he came back from injury, scored there last week. So he's a possibility. Troy Parrott's not scoring goals. Um, but Evan Ferguson is. And, and you see, this is, this is the mental strength that you would need as, uh, as a striker. And he, as I said, he has great people around him which is really really important and I think that comes from the, the St. Kevin's and Bohemians link that they've had Alan Caffrey who's who would have been a huge part of his development when he was um, when he was with St. Kevin's um, and the, the like, like his, his former managers Carl Lamb and Rob Doran and obviously through the Bose ranks of Jer Brown Jimmy Moles even Derek Pender as well at under 17s these are people that have really looked after Evan and, and kept his feet firmly on the ground and you can see that even in his his, his interview last night he's not getting carried away by things even his parents like you'd, what I like to see is is that he's he, when he gets onto the football pitch he's not running around aimlessly he's biding his time he knows exactly when he needs to make the movements and he's just such a clever footballer for somebody that just turned 18 in October. So, as I said, if he keeps going the way he's going, Dave, I think he will start against France. But, look, it's a long way away. We're another couple of months away from that yet. Absolutely. From an Everton point of view, obviously another dismal night. Oh, absolutely terrible, yeah. Um, like, you're looking at... 
obviously their main man Dominic Calvert-Lewin he's been injured for the majority of the season he's trying to get back into the into a bit of fitness um, and then you're relying on as I said uh, earlier on Neil Mopet Neil Mopai who's only got one one goal this season you have Demarley Gray and Dwight McNeil either side of him who haven't really shone um, albeit a fantastic strike by Demarley Gray to get, to get that draw at the Etihad Stadium against Man City last week but I just think he's making too many changes to his team he brings in Tom Davies, Davies yesterday as well and he does okay but obviously when the game is going against you, you have to, you're going to have to make changes and he, he gets he gets hauled off after an hour and I just think they're just defensively really, really poor. Um, Some of the goals and last I just think night that they need. were pretty shocking. The, the goals they conceded. Yeah, and it sums it up. The fourth goal where Idris Gay just gives a sloppy back pass and Pascal Gross runs through and a delicate chip over over uh, Pickford in, in the Everton goal and it's you can hear the boos ringing around and it's hard to get out of that uh, mentality then as a as as a club and they're, they're, the chance of sacking the board it's not even on Lampard anymore they're kind of going above him and um, yeah it's it's not good not good times now for, for Everton but having said that they're still out of the relegation zone they're not in it um, but their form needs to improve drastically now for, for them to climb up the table Things going a lot better at the moment for a former Everton manager now in charge at Fulham. Yeah, I'm really impressed with Marco Silva. Silva, obviously Thomas Frank doing great work with Brentford, of beating Liverpool, Manchester United, and obviously Manchester City as well. But I think with Silva at Fulham, he's going under the radar with some outstanding performances um, from from some of his players, and obviously beating Leicester away yesterday, one nil. Willian coming back to doing what he used to do really, really well with a sublime ball into Mitrovic and scoring another goal, a fantastic finish from him. Um, I'm trying to remember, I think he's got 11 goals now this season and they're up to 7th in the league, level on points with, with Liverpool and Bernd Leno was probably a, one of those signings again that went under the radar a little bit. He's been absolutely fantastic for them and from some fabulous saves from Perez and Barnes yesterday. But that's three wins from three now for Fulham since Stevens Day. And the thing with Fulham is that they don't, they don't lose or to any team in the lower half of the table. They are, it's always to the top team. OK, we've uh, lost Conan there for the moment. But uh, just on that um, situation at Everton, Ian, um, uh, it seems to be a lot of the frustration among the uh, supporters at Goodison Park at the moment is, as uh, Conan mentioned, it's being aimed at the, the board. But... Uh, Clearly, Frank Lampard is a man under pressure as well. Yeah, I'm surprised, actually. Um, I'm surprised. Well, not surprised, but they just had they found themselves in this position, especially losing 4-1 um, at Goodison Park last night. It's, it's going to be very uh, squeaky bump time, as they say, for, for him. But just to go back to... I was just listening to you talking about um, Evan Ferguson there as well, and I agree, like nobody, nobody's putting too much pressure on a, on a young player like this, 18. But at the same time, I was watching him last night, and like his physicality, his maturity, his development... It's the old Doesn't say, look like an 18-year-old. Yeah, if, you go to, if you're good enough you're old enough or if you're old enough you're good enough whichever way that's supposed to go like I mean he I think I think he's got fantastic potential but again you can't predict these things it's not a it's not linear but when you're that good at that age chances are you, you're going to make a breakthrough and um, I mean the other big result obviously last night was nil all against Arsenal and, and, and Newcastle United I think at, at the start of the season if you talked about that being a game where you might kind of go wow that might that might change things considerably here you wouldn't have said that but it's it's not what Arsenal wanted I mean they could have gone 
10 points clear I think if they'd won that um, at home and said exactly what Newcastle wanted I, I only watched back some of the highlights and by all accounts Arsenal didn't bring a whole lot to, to, to the game so um, it's it's been a very interesting uh, development over the last and people talk about the Premiership when it, when it hits Christmas and what what happens at Christmas well we're into the second weekend in January nearly already and uh, things are still still shaken up quite quite considerably I think we have uh, Conan back on the line Conan we um Obviously, we've been speaking about Everton and, we, and we, before we lost you there. But just to move it on again in terms of, uh, you were mentioning uh, Fulham perhaps going a little bit under the radar. But uh, so too maybe Burnley in terms of uh, flying high in the uh, top of the championship under Vincent Company, and obviously a, a big Irish interest there with uh, Josh Cullen. Yeah, they're on a six-game winning streak over the Christmas period. They've had some fantastic wins, obviously away to Swansea and Stoke. Um, brilliant winning at home to Middlesbrough as well Michael Carrick doing great stuff at, at, uh, on Teesside there with with Middlesbrough bringing them from 24th right up into the playoff spots so to get a 3-1 win against them was huge at the time and, and then Josh Cullen he's been he's he's been absolutely superb he's played 90 minutes in, in every game over the Christmas period one of the only players to do that in the championship and his goal against Stoke away sums up his the, the type of play that he's been doing he, they're, they're five points clear now of, of Sheffield United in second place and probably better still, 14 points clear of third. So they have to throw it away if they're not going to get promoted into the into the Premier League this season. But I think the the job that Vincent Company has done has, has been absolutely superb. And it, I, I I mentioned before, I think it was on Game On actually that when Vincent Company got the job, I'd be interested to see if he took Josh Cullen along with him because obviously Josh was with him at Anderlecht last season, um, and he did. And he's been at the heart of that midfield, losing two games in 26 this season, which is absolutely phenomenal considering the championship is such a tough league to, to get out of and to win games. And um, yeah, it's just, it's really good. And, and especially with the, with, the, with the way that there's not many Irish Premier League players. And at the moment in 19th and 20th, we have Wolves and Southampton who have Nathan Collins, Joe Hodge, Gavin Bazunu. And if those, position, those lads stay in that position, they're obviously going to get relegated. And that kind of puts more Irish Premier League players down into the championship so it's important then that we kind of see Josh Cullen and, and the job that he and how he's playing in his field under Vincent Company is, is really is really progressive and it's good good to see as it burned from an Irish perspective Sure is just to end really the uh, conversation I suppose where we began which is uh, on Evan Ferguson I know you said we have to be careful about uh, hyping him up too much and perhaps putting too much pressure on his uh, very young shoulders but just again looking at some of the uh, little stats that have come out um, regarding Ferguson obviously that New Year's Eve goal made him the youngest Republic of Ireland player to score in the Premier League after last night he's now the first teenager to score in back-to-back Premier League games since Federico Makeda Remember him from Manchester United back in 2009. He's also now the second youngest player in Premier League history to both score and assist in a game. The youngest was Michael Owen for Liverpool back in 1997. So uh, the more we read about him, the more we see him, the more impressive uh, it gets. Yeah, look, he's such an impressive footballer and those stats, that they don't lie. You just would like him to have a better career than McKayda. Um Obviously, he came onto the scene with that fantastic brace against Aston Villa with, with the goal where he, on the turn where he puts it into the, into the top corner. Fantastic goal. And then, obviously, now with Evan, it's just so important that he keeps his development going. And as I said, he made his debut against Chelsea at 14 and then he makes his league debut up in the Bandywell against Derry City and... Everything has been progressive. He's, he keeps 
progressing through the ranks Premier League and the Premier League 2 division he's doing he's scoring goals he's assisting goals and now at the top level in the Premier League he's scoring goals assisting goals and, and as long as he keeps development progressing we'll hear Evan Ferguson's name for years to come Yeah certainly 2023 could be a, a very significant year for Evan Ferguson Conan thanks for joining us and uh, enjoy the game tonight we'll talk to you soon Thank you Dave take care Game on on 2FM silver medal position and surely she's got a medal sewn up here because the gap back to the pack is 20-30 metres just keep it going Kieran McGeehan literally at this moment the gold medal is a possibility but Laura Muir has got strength and she's got speed that 156-800 metre speed is going to take her by the looks of it to the gold medal now Kira's got to make sure that she keeps the momentum going no lactic acid at this point Kieran McGeehan all the way to the line she's going to get a silver medal a brilliant brilliant silver medal for Kieran McGeehan Greg Allen describing Kira McGean's silver medal at the European Championships last year. Obviously, it's a very good time to be involved in uh, Irish athletics. And uh, Ian, as someone who's been on the athletics beat for many a year, uh, how optimistic are you about the, the year to come? Yeah, as you say, great commentary there by Greg Allen that night in Munich. Was, I think it was a Friday evening and we were all uh, captivated by Kira's performance um, in winning silver behind Laura Muir. Don't forget, that came on the back of winning a silver medal in the Commonwealth Games. Then she went on to win the Brussels Diamond League. She broke Sonia O'Sullivan's 1,500-metre record which had stood since 1995 at 356 odds. Um, that's not that's not a bad season. So for Kira to, to build on that this year is, is obviously going to be a huge challenge. Um, you also had Mark English winning a bronze medal in the 800 metres. Then you think of the breakthroughs of Rashidas and Deleke making the 400 metre final. Um, and then obviously you had Israel Olatunde, now the fastest Irishman alive, breaking the Irish record, which has stood to Paul Hessian since 2017. Um, there was several breakthrough performances, several breakthrough performances. Kate O'Connor, I give her a shout out as well. She won a, a medal in the um, silver medal in the heptathlon in the Commonwealth Games. So there was there was a real sense of depth, a real sense of of um, um, I suppose um, anticipation about athletics we ha- we haven't had in a while. And now I suppose the point to make about this coming year is is, is twofold. Number one, we have a European indoor championship that's coming up in in March. That's another opportunity for sure for the likes of Kira, for the likes of uh, Mark English to, to win medals. And then we have a World Championships in Budapest at the end of August, and that's that's a real step up. Um, for a few reasons. Number one, it's a World Championships, obviously. Secondly, it's 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 we're, it's an Olympic year. We're, we're pre-Olympic year, and um, I know for some strange reason, I've my life seemed to have gone on, gone on Olympic cycles. And here we are talking about another one next year already. Of course, we had a World Championships last year, but that was held over. So this is the scheduled yes. World Championship the year before the Olympics. Yes, yes, yeah. No disrespect to to, to Eugene Aragon last year's World Championships, but it, it didn't feel like a properly global event for for a whole variety of reasons. Budapest definitely will. Um, so for the likes of Rashida, for the likes of Israel, for the likes of even for Kira, to build in that season is not is not is not going to be easy. But look, that's that's what it's all about. It's trying to it's trying to um, it's all about trying now to, to build towards Paris, as I say, next year. And by the way, Dave, one of the things that kind of snuck in under the radar, I think it was about a week or two before Christmas, was they announced the qualifying standards for for, for the track and field events. These are pretty scary for Paris. <laughs> and at first of all, I was looking at them going, well, some of these can't be right. Um, well, there's actually two ways you can qualify. You can qualify by hitting the qualifying standard, the old 
qualifying ace standard as we used to call it and then there's a new ranking system as well whereby it's the top um, the top quota of athletes in that event will qualify they reckon about 50% will come by hitting the qualifying standard and the other 50% will come by the, the ranking system which was there but for Tokyo t- uh, two or three years ago by the way but just to give you an example the men's 10,000 metres is 27 minutes flat you might go okay what exactly does that mean well no European born runner has ever br- run 27 minutes flat as in broken 27 minutes so that's that's going to be a challenge for a lot of European runners to do that. The men's marathon was 2.11.30 to qualify for Tokyo. It's now dropped down to 2.08. Um, 208, two, 2 hours, 8 minutes and 10 seconds, which is about a, a minute quicker than John Tracy's Irish, unofficial Irish record, which goes back to, I think, I think 1998. Um, the men's 100 metres, hazard a guess what that might be, 10 seconds flat. 10 seconds so flat. you have to run yeah, 10 yeah, seconds yeah, flat yeah. If, you want, if you want to qualify on standard. Now again, this this is kind of, it's kind of, I, I, um, the, the, I suppose the benefits are that if athletes hit those qualifying times, well then they're in obviously, but if they don't, they can still try and get there through the ranking system which which kind of re- rewards consistency and, and obviously gets athletes racing more. But I think you're, you're, the point you're making is, is very, very good because for the casual viewer who would maybe just watch the major championships or whatever, and I think I've seen athletes often refer to this that the, the effort and the the skill and the ability required just to qualify for these events is is phenomenal. And as I said, the casual viewer might say, "Well, why? You know, is that the person didn't even make a semi final, didn't make a final?" But some of the figures you've just gave us there are pretty frightening. Yeah, and, and as I say, the process begins this year. The marathon's already underway. The track and field will begin from whatever it is, Mar- uh, March, April, right through the summer, and then it'll go up to maybe in the middle of uh, June uh, 2024, and then it'll be obviously a couple of weeks before they before they announce the rankings. But I uh, know oh, it's not all doom and gloom. I mean, uh, the, like, for example, I mentioned Rashidat at Alake. Don't forget, she was only 19 when she made, when she made that European Championship final, running out of lane one. Um, the women's qualifying time for the 400 metres was 51.35. She's well under that with her 50 points, 50 seconds, 50 Point four five. So she. So there's a few examples whereby they will, they will qualify. But in most cases, and certainly all the field events, to qualify for the Tokyo Olympics, you will essentially have to break an Irish record, um, just 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 to get there. And just on Rashida, going back to what we were talking about regarding Evan Ferguson and not putting too much pressure on on a, a, a young sportsman or woman, are, are we in danger of perhaps doing that with her? No, I don't think so. Not so far. I mean, Rashida's been very, very lucky in a sense that she's she's light, no more than ever. And she's made a very steady progression. She hasn't made some big jump and then sort of maybe dropped off the cliff again and had to climb back up again. She's been very steady progression. For her, going to America, going to Texas University, a big, bold move, by the way. I mean, Texas is one of the biggest schools and college, one of the biggest one of the biggest colleges in America. And I remember being down there one time and it's literally like a, a city onto its own. And um, She's gone down there. She's in her, going into her third year now, I think. So she's still got a couple more years in college. And that development path has really suited her well. Um, I think for Israel, Israel Otto, Sunday is probably going to be a little bit more difficult for him because he made again he made it probably an even bigger jump this year becoming Ireland's fastest man at age 20 but you've, you've heard him he's an extremely modest guy and I, I, I would definitely I definitely expect Israel to run faster again this year for sure and for Kira McGee and there's no doubt she's a completely different athlete now that she's won a, won a diamond league race now that she's now that she's um I just say two medals on the track this year. I think Kier's least least of ambitions for for next year will be to make that Olympic final and to really put herself in, in a medal contention, and that and that's really exciting. But for the others, for some for some of the athletes I mentioned there, just to just to qualify, it's going to be a long, long journey. And um, um, I, I do wonder sometimes if, if the if if some of these qualifying times are putting some of them out of reach. That maybe maybe you might even be you might you might even be encouraging them um, in doping in some cases. 
And would you be targeting, like, what, what would you be targeting for Irish athletics this year in, in an overall general sense? Yeah, it goes back, as I say, the, the European Indoor Championships now are on in Istanbul in, in, in March. And that's an event where, again, for the likes of Israel, for the likes of Kier, if she decides to run, there's, 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 there's medals to be won there. Um, we've seen, we, we're still a little bit, uh, I say, um, falling behind maybe some of the middle distance events. I mean, in fairness, Andrew, I know Andrew Koshkin made the final in, in Munich, but we definitely we de- there's definitely potential there for for a few of those guys to kick on as well. We did we did see, by the way, was it five medals won at the European Cross Country there in December, which is, I think, the, the largest record haul for Irish athletes. Um, young Nicholas Griggs, who continues to continues to amaze as, as a teenager. So again, it'd be very exciting to see what he does in, 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 in the underage ranks. I wouldn't be surprised to see him qualify for, for European indoors as well. But but certainly, the big one really is is Budapest in August. It's 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 a pro, going to be a proper global championships. Anybody who's even thinking about even thinking about making a mark in the Paris Olympics is going to want to show their it's going to show their hands in, in in Budapest. And I think that that's that will be a real benchmark for where Irish athletics is on the global stage. We've seen where they are at the European stage. There's no doubt they can compete. And I don't think we've ever seen a, a more successful European championships. But I think when it comes to Budapest, we might get a better reflection just where Ireland Irish athletics is really on the global stage. Okay, Ian, stay with us. Now, last night, only three days into the new year, we witnessed surely one of the sporting moments of 2023. 61 seconds of magic, the greatest leg in the history of darts. Uh, Michael Van Gerwen isn't in any mood to give him a sniff. Yeah, the, the combination finishing... can tell by the way they're scoring there may be nothing in it they may both be on nines Michael may miss and Michael may hit they're both on nines they're both on a nine this is insane wow the world championship final Michael Van Gerwen is on Fantastic job by Stuart Pike and Wayne Mardle last night, calling it live on Sky Sports. Ultimately, Michael Smith came out on top against Michael Van Gerwen to become world champion for the first time and the new world number one. Michael Glennon from RT Sport Online is with us. And Michael, that really was something special, wasn't it? Yeah, just even I've I've looked at it a few times today and I have a big smile on my face listening to the commentary there now and you know you would defy anybody to to look at that uh, minute and a half uh, without a smile or without a sense of awe about how how it was the perfect leg or the best the best leg ever thrown in darts and it, it even caused an injury in the in the commentary box because yeah as you say a great job by uh, Stuart Pike and Wayne Mardell but. Wayne had to be substituted, had to be tagged off um, soon after uh, with, with a 
because he couldn't speak. He lost his voice again. I know um, Van Gerwen went very close to back-to-back nine darters at a World Championship a few years back. But uh, again, that really was something special when you had the two guys going for it. One guy so close to getting it and then Smith following up and uh, nailing the finish. Yeah, and, and they, they said at the time, obviously, the best leg ever and in a world, to, to do it in a world final as well. Yeah, Van Gerwen a few years ago had 17 perfect darts, just missed a double um, to, to get two nine darts back to back. A couple of, in 2018, what was regarded as the best leg ever was probably um, Van Gerwen on a nine darter as well. And he hit seven perfect darts before missing. But coming up behind him, Gary Anderson had left a 170 finish and... Michael just missed the nine darter, and Anderson hit the hit the big fish finish. So that that had been previously, you know, regarded as the as the best leg ever. But not, nothing could really match, or probably nothing will match what we saw last night. Yeah, fantastic entertainment, and it's become such a part of the uh, the sporting uh, calendar around Christmas, hasn't it? That the World Championships and people really get into it now. People are obviously saying that after the dramatic events of last night that it was the the greatest world final ever. Now, I'm going to ask your opinion in a moment, but I'm going to put forward uh, 2007, uh, Raymond Van Barneveld 7, Phil Taylor 6. What do you reckon? Yeah, I knew that that would going to come up. And in the middle, while we were watching that last night, it it seemed to be uh, growing into the best world championship final ever. And even if it's a into an area where we wouldn't debate it. And I would say that just as it finished up um, 7-4 and Michael, you could see he, he faded off towards the end. Like it was just a phenomenal quality, phenomenal standard. Um, Michael Smith, just over 100. Michael Van Gerwen, just below it. I would think that it's up there now in the debate about the best finals ever. And as you say, that, that final in 2007, 7-6 to, to Barney, it's up there with the seven six to part from from two thousand and three and Anderson and Taylor in two thousand and thirteen as well seven six matches so you can see there the, the pattern of the matches we talk about as the greatest ever were seven six and closer and went it went more of a distance maybe with a couple of sets to go you could really see the writing on the wall last night which is a tribute to what the the, the standards Michael Smith has reached and and the pressure he put. Um, put Michael Van Gerwen under. It's interesting. I'm certainly not qualified to compare uh, previous uh, darts finals, but but I I I not man. I'm going to confess here. I'm not even a darts fan. But I was sent that I was sent that clip about three or four times today already. I've been certainly reading up a little bit on, on Michael Smith. It's not often you see words like persistence and resilience and courage in the face of adversity because he'd lost. I don't know how many finals before that. Um, before, but the thing that struck me as well. Uh, you probably noticed more than me, Michael. He's so young. What he's 32. Um, Van Garvin's what about 33? So these are kind of kids, really, on the surface. Market, aren't they in terms of like what their how, how their, their potential careers and how much longer they have in Absolutely. the game yeah especially a game like darts we, you know there's there's been world champions Phil Taylor won the world championship at 52 um, Peter Wright was 50 when he won it Gary Anderson was up there at that age as well so I mean it, it is uh, if say if you consider the guys turning pro at 25 26 they do have a 30 year career from then or 25 year career from then so Certainly, these guys are the future as well. Now, they just have been around the block over the last 10 years, so they, they seem as if they're well into their career. But, um, you know, to keep, their, keep themselves healthy and that, they can, they can do another 15, 20 years at the top level. Um, so it's great to see, even though 
nowadays there are so, a younger generation coming through um, as well as we saw with Josh Rock and, and Keen Barry, guys like this who will be in the mix as as they come through academies and, and they get onto the challenge and development uh, circuits as well. So, um, yeah, the age is no barrier in, in darts, certainly. Yeah, and as Dave said, they've really cracked the marketing thing. I mean, it's become part of the Christmas TV schedule as well, but it's it makes for quality viewing. And I think I think that 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 clearly helps as well. I mean, the old the old days of sort of sm- smoky hill uh, filled dart room halls, yes. they're long since gone. Absolutely, but um, I know again, with, a, with a show like Game On, we're we're watching uh, the darts all year round, and they're in Bahrain next week, and or and then they'll be in the Nordic Darts Championship before the Masters. So it it, it does go on. It does. They'll be in Dublin next month, Michael, year, won't they? With the Premier League, Dublin on the twenty third. Yeah, Dublin on the twenty third of February. Um, no, it's year it's year round for for people like me and uh, the producers of Game On. But uh, certainly around Christmas, people say, yeah, get, let's get the darts on. It's it, it occupies a place certainly in the sporting uh, calendar. It's associated with Christmas, and, and it's just it is as as Ian says there. It's just really well marketed by the PDC who have turned it around. And um, I think a couple of years ago, um, Barry Hearn was saying that after soccer, it's the most uh, watched sport on Sky Sports. And I mean, they, that was when they had cricket as well. So interesting, um, yeah. Certainly, it is a phenomenon. Yeah. And in terms of Michael Smith himself, now as we said, world champion, new world number one. He spoke after his win about dominating the game in the coming years that's uh, one thing saying that and obviously something else to actually do that yeah well I'll, I'll, it's um, it's one of the enduring legacies of Phil Taylor because he obviously won 16 world championships but in a certain way he pulled the ladder up behind him to to ensure that that would never be touched because the second best player after Taylor is Van Gerwen who only has three uh, titles and that was the 30th PDC edition uh, of the World Championships and there have been 11 uh, winners. And what Taylor did was bring in the money and the spotlight so that if you wanted to compete with someone like him, you would have to put in a lot of training and a lot of dedication. And the money that came into it through the PDC means that there will be a lot more players, aspiring players, putting in that time and effort. And the, the quality is raised up. So it used to be Taylor and a couple of others uh, jousting for years but now it will be Smith and Van Gerwen and Price and uh, a handful 10 other players who could go on a run and could win uh, a world championship or major certainly Any way back Michael do you think at this point for the likes of some of the old guard the likes of James Wade Adrian Lewis um, Adrian Lewis found a little bit of form this year but it's hard to say again there's younger guys who are putting in phenomenal hours on, on the practice board and um, James Wade only a couple of years ago was a, was a major winner as well with the, the UK Open so he, he's always there or thereabouts Adrian Lewis it's always good to see him putting in an effort but I'm not sure about him whether he can come back he'd love to but I think he also is on the record of saying if it doesn't if it didn't happen this year if he didn't make an impact at the Worlds he might give it another year but he won't keep coming back to the well un- unless he-, he finds a better form Still obviously very popular players as you say and so too Raymond van Barneveld who we saw at this year's uh, tournament but just finally on Michael Smith uh, after he won last night, he was almost downplaying the achievement, saying that it was a MVG bad performance, more so than him doing well. He 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 seemed almost in shock at the uh, you know the magnitude of what he just achieved. 
Yeah, I, I guess it was still sinking in. I mean, he, he was a former World Youth Champion. He, he had been beaten in 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 a couple of World Cup fi- finals before and eight major finals um, as well. So it was it was slowly sinking into him, and he he took it very well. He was very and Michael Van Gerwen very gracious in defeat as well. I would say one of the main things that Michael Smith was saying after that. He, He's hungry to compete again. He, he he wasn't put off. He has a taste now after winning the Grand Slam. He has a taste now after winning the World Championship. There's a, a few other tournaments where his name is just runner-up and he, he can target them throughout the year and really build on his legacy. But again, he will be around uh, in and around the top players for the next 10, 15 years. Michael, it's been a fantastic World Championship and we've really enjoyed your uh, contributions here on Game On and as you say, plenty of uh, darting action to look forward to in 2023. Thank you very much. Game On on 2FM. The Premier League fixtures continue tonight. Four games on in total, among them Leeds United against West Ham. The team news from Peter Smith. I've just received them uh, moments ago, actually, so I'm just trying to digest... The uh, two starting 11s, um, give me a few seconds for that. Certainly is a very important game for both clubs, really. Leeds United, two points clear of the relegation zone. And West Ham, they've got 14 points. They're just out of it on goal difference as things stand at the moment. It's certainly been a um, difficult uh, couple of weeks for, for David Moyes, as you, as you mentioned, Peter, hasn't it? Yeah, it has, but I think the old mantra of the performances haven't been as bad as the results suggested it's probably true in his case I know people can point to different things and say they've been unlucky but I don't really think that West Ham have been playing with the air of a relegation threatened team Um, but then again as people will point out in boardrooms up and down the country it's a results driven business and if West Ham were to lose tonight that would be six consecutive defeats in the Premier League David Moyes has been saying, though, that he's had good support from his board and doesn't really feel under any undue or unnecessary pressure. And he's got a good record here at Ellen Road, that is for sure. Four times he's been here as a manager. He's won three times and drawn the other one. Only Sir Alex Ferguson's got a better away record as a manager at Leeds United. So that's maybe an omen in Mr Moyes' favour tonight. OK, Peter, many thanks for joining us. As we said, uh, one of uh, four Premier League games uh, taking place tonight. Of course, uh, Chelsea playing the champions Manchester City tomorrow. Manchester City with a chance to uh, close that gap at the top. Arsenal uh, drawing nil-nil with uh, Newcastle United last night. Now, a total of 10 Chinese players have been suspended from the World Snooker Tour. Zhao Zintong, the 2021 UK champion, is among them. These sanctions relate to an ongoing investigation into match fixing. I'm joined now by snooker journalist Michael McMullen. Michael, can you just uh, fill us in on the uh, background to this story? Yeah, well, this has been going on really now for a couple of months. Liang Wenbo, the former English Open champion, former World Championship quarter-finalist, was suspended a couple of months back. And then we heard, probably about one month ago now, that a group of five Chinese players had also been banned all at the same time. And we were wondering, well, how big is this going to get? And we found out a few days later when Yan Bing Tao, Masters champion the season before last and a current member of the top 16, turned up to play his first match in the English Open at Brentwood and was promptly told that he wouldn't be allowed to play the match and indeed had been suspended from the tour also as part of this. And then arguably it got even bigger, as you say, within the last few days. Zhao Zintong, who won the UK Championship last season and then backed it up by winning another big ranking event, 
the German masters in Berlin just a few weeks later. And he was also being included in all of this. So as you said, Dave, we now have 10 players, all of them Chinese, all suspended from the tour. And this is all as part of an investigation which is going on at the moment. Now, I have spoken to Jason Ferguson, the chairman of the WPBSA, who look after all this, and he has strongly indicated that even though there are so many players involved and obviously a lot to get through, this investigation is perhaps a lot further down the line than people might think, and that some resolution may be forthcoming very, very soon within the next couple of weeks. Now, that would be remarkable if they could get things wrapped up to any extent within that period of time. And then we find out, of course, will any charges result from that? Will there be any uh, suspensions? You could be looking at potentially very long bans. Stephen Lee was banned for 12 years for offences of this nature. But then equally so, Jason has also indicated that it may not quite be as bad as it seems because while some players may end up being found to have been involved in serial match fixing, others, and we have to be very careful what we say about this because nothing's been concluded yet, may be found to have been brought under undue influence to behave in a way that they didn't want to behave and that certain pressure may have been brought to bear on them. And although sanctions would still apply in those cases, they would not be as severe. I think we have to hope that's the case. The idea that a lot of players would have willingly gone and thrown matches for financial gain will be very disturbing for the game, particularly when you consider how many of them are young players who would have been considered very much as the game's future. Yes, as you say, it's always difficult to discuss these type of stories and uh, we have to wait to see what happens, as you say, in in the coming weeks. But, uh, you know, stories like this is an obvious question, but how damaging do you think they are to the sport? Well, that, I think, depends on what exactly emerges from it. If it was to turn out that a lot of players had been involved in this and knew exactly what they were getting into and weren't under any pressure or undue influence, well, then that's very, very bad indeed. Indeed, even one player being in that situation would obviously look very, very bad for any sport. What you do have to say is that snooker at times can be a victim of... Uh, its own diligence, shall we say, in terms of dealing with these matters. And there have been rumblings for a long time about various match-fixing stories. Some of them, I think there was nothing to them. Others, there's been more substance and some players have been dealt with. But in the past, perhaps it wasn't taken quite as seriously as it should have been. When Barry Hearn took over the running of the sport round about 12, 13 years ago, He was very clear this was a big priority for him to clamp down on this and any suggestion of any wrongdoing or anything that even approached wrongdoing would be dealt with very, very severely. That's always been the case. So Snooker has not been willing throughout that time to sweep anything under the carpet, which of course is good in one sense because it acts as quite a deterrent to anything. But then at the same time, it's brings these things to the fore and tarnishes the the game's image. Nobody wants to think of watching professional sport and thinking of the players doing anything other than their utmost to win. And uh, if it is to be the case that uh, we're looking at a lot of matches that have been played by, you know, what are some high-profile players over the last number of years that were not contested, honestly? Well, of course, that would be very bad for snooker as it would be for any sport. On a much lighter note, you've obviously been covering snooker for a long time, very much part of the Eurosport uh, team uh, at the moment as well. Uh, the Masters beginning this weekend, it really is one of those tournaments that I think that every snooker fan looks forward to. And Mark Allen perhaps looking to continue his outstanding form this season. Yeah, I mean, it's just got so much history to it. And I think most people now regard it as second only to the World Championship. I think for a long time, the UK was regarded as the second biggest. And that perhaps has changed over the last uh, 
11 or 12 years since the matches were shortened a bit. That's still a big event, but I think the Masters now, wonderful venue at Alexandra Palace, which of course was staging the darts up until last night, and they've done such an amazing job there creating this great atmosphere that they've worked on over a number of years. It's only one table, it's only the top 16, so it's become a cliche to say that every match there feels like a final, but it really is true. And Mark Allen has been in a couple of big finals this season and won them and continued his good form recently coming up to Christmas as well, just showing great consistency. So he'll be among the favourites to win the Masters, a tournament he has won before. And he starts off against Barry Hawkins, uh, who was runner-up last year for the second time in the Masters. And uh, will certainly go there as one of the big favourites, Alan. He's had periods like this in his career before. You think back to around this time four years ago, he had another very similar run where he had a succession of really good tournaments and good performances. Wasn't able to sustain it. What I think is different this time is he's not just winning matches with his trademark fluent style. Throughout the UK Championship, we saw much more of a battling side to him. He's never been lacking that in, that in, in his game. He's always been willing to get stuck in when he's not playing his best and dig out a result. But I spoke to him about this a few weeks ago and he agreed with my view that he's just found another level in that sense and that he's now more adept than ever at winning matches when not playing his best. And that, of course, is the key for any top player to sustaining that success over a long period. Michael, good to talk to you. Thanks for joining us on Game On. Cheers, Dave. Ian, we spoke earlier in the programme about uh, the athletics year ahead and how much uh, there is to look forward to. But uh, away from the athletics, is there anything in particular you're, you're, you're really uh, looking forward to in 2023? Yeah, well, there is, Dave. I mean, obviously, a lot of me talk about the Women's Football wor- uh, World Cup, obviously, in the, in the summer, and then the Men's Rugby World Cup, and then whether McElroy can get back on the... At the the uh, the winning streak again, but uh, I, I'm looking forward to big year for Sam Bennett in, in cycling. Um, I think I think people forget Sam Bennett was on the top of his game in tw- tw- 2020. Now it almost seems like a, a lifetime ago when he won two stages in the Tour de France and of course the green jersey. And to me, that was one of the outstanding um, moments in anybody's sporting career. He was incredibly unlucky then in la- 2021. He he had a great start to the season, was going really really well, and then he banged his knee off the handlebar and got injured. Ended up missing the Tour de France. Famous fallout with his team. Then this was done the new yeah it's quick step. He joined a new team for 2021. Uh, this this um, sorry 2022. This will be this year, of course. That the Bora Hansgrohe got off to a very slow start and was really struggling to find his form. Uh, missed the Tour de France again, but then he got got back to his best just in time for the the Vuelta España and he won two stages in, in a row. I think the first Irish rider ever to win two consecutive stages in a Grand Tour. And then I think about ten days in, he has to leave the tour because of because of COVID. But reading some. Interviews, recent interviews with Sam Bennett. He's he's right back where he needs to be in terms of his, his pre-season training. Um, he's gonna he's gonna hopefully have some early uh, early races, some, some of the classics, obviously like Milan, San Remo. But I think if, if Sam Bennett can get to the start line for this year's Tour de France, I think we're going to see uh, we're going to see him right back to his best. I think it's it starts it's starting down in Spain, I think, and it's a very it's certainly a very hilly few weeks, sorry, few opening stages. But after that, there's about five or six, or possibly even more, what you regard as sprint stages. So I think from a from a from a Sam Bennett point of view, he's been eyeing this one up, and you know it'd be a great comeback story for someone like Sam Bennett because he, what he did in 2020 uh, was at the height of COVID as well. There wasn't much sport going on, so I actually ended up watching a lot of a lot of cycling during that time. And people were talking earlier on about watching darts, and, and obviously, but I'd happily sit down and watch a five-hour stage of the Tour de France and see that as as great entertainment. And some of the some of the performances Sam Bennett did in that year, so he's he's certainly one to look out for. I think this summer. 
Well, certainly, as you mentioned, uh, in terms of cycling, it's another sport with a rich Irish tradition, as is uh, athletics, and uh, certainly with uh, so much to look forward to in uh, 2023. Let's uh, hope we're going to be reporting on plenty of Irish success stories uh, here on Game On, and of course, uh, an RTE in general over the uh, the coming year. Many thanks for uh, for joining me, Ian. Thank you, uh, that's pretty much it for tonight. Uh, Adrian Eames produced. Andrew Deper was the uh, BCO. Uh, Shane Dawson uh, will be here tomorrow. And uh, I'll talk to you soon. RTE 2FM.